What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Data Science Happy Hour number 53. Last week was one entire year of doing this thing, and now we're back at it for another epic year of data science thing and data science uh, happy hours and all that stuff. Shout out to everybody that's joining us in the room. Uh, Alexandra, Eric, Russell, Linda, Vinod, happy to have you guys here. Shout out to everybody that's tuning in on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on Twitch. If you guys have questions, please do let me know what your questions are right there in the comment. I am keeping an eye out in the comment section for your questions, my friends. Uh, and if you don't have questions but want to join in, have no fear. You can join in and chill out. I'm dropping a link to the Zoom room right there in the comments. You guys can join in. Um, hopefully, you guys got a chance to check out the episode that I released uh, today. It was with Professor John Verveke. John Verveke is a uh, professor of cognitive science, neuroscience, philosophy, all, all sorts of stuff at uh, University of Toronto. That was a really cool interview. I was, um, I can confidently say that that interview put me way outside of my comfort zone because um, he's just an exceptional guy, very smart thinker, very clear thinker. And um, I was like, dude, I sound like an idiot. Hopefully he does not find out that I am in fact an idiot with a microphone. Um, but it went well. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Hopefully you guys tuned in. If not, there's plenty of time to tune in this weekend. Shout out to Kate Strachny and Dedicated. Dedicated was live this week. That was uh, that was awesome, man. Hopefully you guys got a chance to join in on that. Hopefully you got to see my presentation. If not, the presentation is up on YouTube. And I will, in fact, be giving that same presentation, but the director's cut the extended version of that presentation on um, this Wednesday, October 13th. Um, I can go ahead and leave a link for that. So hopefully you guys can join in. Um, I put a lot of hard work into those uh, slides. Keynote is, you know, it's awesome. What else? Shout out to Joe Reese. Joe Reese was on the podcast this week too. We did a live stream on, on LinkedIn and on YouTube. Um, the actual episode is going to be released on the podcast at sometime in the future. So like probably March of next year. Um, also got a packed month in terms of in interviews for the podcast. Um, so I'm interviewing Brittany Doe on Saturday. So that's tomorrow at 11 a.m. Central time. I'll be live streaming my interview with Brittany Doe. She is the author of uh, Bigger Than Leadership. So we're going to be talking about her book. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'll be on a, I'll be on Christian Steinert's podcast, Data and Impact, on Tuesday. I'm excited for that, man. Christian is a good friend of the show. Thank you for the support, my friend. Um, interviewing Andrew Jones on Wednesday. That will also be a live stream. I should probably set up some type of calendar notifications for you guys on that. Um, and then next Saturday, I'm going to be interviewing the data professor himself and be interviewing Chan in on the show. Uh, that'll be live on LinkedIn and YouTube as well. And just more and more and more live streams. It's going to be awesome. October is going to be a jam-packed month, not to mention all the office hours with Comet, not to mention all the happy hours here as well. All right, that is enough of me. I'm pretty sure you guys have had enough of my ranting. Looks like we got some steam on the live. Uh, so let's, let's go for it. Let's open with this question. What was the hardest part about being a data scientist for you this week? What was the hardest part about data sciencing for you? That is the question, my friends. I want to know. Let me know in the comments. Uh, let me know if you guys want to chime in here. We're going to go to uh, Eric, then Alexandra, then, then Russell. Eric, what was the hardest part about data sciencing for you this week? Yeah, so the hardest part this week, I'm looking at my calendar. Uh, so. I have had this project that I've been working on and struggling with and trying to get my head around for several weeks now, in a couple months. And uh, getting, so the, the thing that's challenging about it is that it has like Adobe Analytics data and then data that we store on our other, you know, other databases or whatever. And trying to make sure that those numbers add up. And if they don't add up exactly, understanding why they're different. And so I've been talking with the reporting team as well as with the product team. And then the three of us, like sitting down and talking together and making progress on that. And then I spent, I was telling Alex about this earlier today. Since we got to where we needed to with those, then we spent the rest, or then I spent a lot of today 
using that to figure out how to, you know, twist and manipulate the data. All in, this was all in SQL um, so that I can calculate retention rates for a, a newish feature that we have, that we've launched. And so like right, right at the very end of the day, I got the query to work the way that I wanted to. It's fantastic. I even got it into Tableau, which is great. So it was really hard um, and it's not done yet, but at least the really just the understanding what the data is saying and where to find it all. Um, that was definitely the, the biggest challenge this week. Not even like any model fitting or any, any crazy stuff like that, just actually sorting out the data. Uh, that yeah. Often, often the biggest struggle I will face at the start of any project is going through all that shit, man. Um, data maturity is a thing. And if you're not data mature, you should get data mature. Shout out to Albert Bellamy. He's going to be on an epsilon, I mean, episode of a, of a, of a podcast. Uh, um, coming up soon, man. You've been making those podcast rounds. I got to get you on, on, on the show, man. I think, uh, I think Albert Bellamy is, you know, needs to be on the Artist of Data Science podcast. One of these days, uh, probably November, December, man, we'll get that sorted out. Uh, shout out to Ash and Matt Blaza. Uh, and also uh, that Lynn L.N. Cohen, what's up? Um, yeah, man, what's the hardest part about being a data scientist for you this week? My friend, Alexander, good to see you again. Yeah, for me, um, not necessarily even a project that I've been working on, but I've really been trying to take the week to wrap my head around time series data. And I feel like I have a good grasp on some of the foundations, but seasonality keeps tripping me up with some of the, the projects I've been working on recently. So not even necessarily one specific project or one trip up the way that uh, Eric's been grinding on his retention project, but just wrapping my head around really understanding seasonality, how to address it, how to account for it so that, you know, moving forward, I can make sure I'm addressing it correctly. Do you got any lessons from the field that you can share with us uh, regarding that topic? Have you um, like had like an aha moment or something that you want to share with us? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, no, we've been trying to, we're working on this model and the the biggest piece that we keep running into is just really 9-11. That's just like the one outlier in the, the data. I think it starts from like 1980 or something. So that's just like right smack in the middle causing some issues. Um, can't say that I've had my aha moment yet, but uh, maybe tune in next week and I'll share, share something I've learned. <laughs> yeah, 9-11, definitely a, a tragic incident and one that could not be foreseen. Black Swan event in the world, words of a uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, um, you can go to Russell and then Ashen if you want to join in too. Uh, beautiful view, by the way, Ashen. I'd love to know where you are. A uh, question we are opening it with is, what was the hardest part about data sciencing for you this week? What was the hardest part about being a data scientist, data analyst, data engineer, whatever it is that you are? What was the hardest part of your week? I want to hear that. Uh, Russell, go for it. Uh, evening all. Um, so I put something a little bit uh, sarcastic in the comments here, just saying, you know, it's to explain to others what a data scientist is and how that's different from a data engineer or a data analyst, etc. You know, I, I tend to have those conversations often. That, that was a bit sarcastic. Um, in uh, in actuality, um, the di most difficult part is the the data, dealing with the data, structuring the data, preparing the data, maintaining the data. I've had some data this week that's just been so transitory, it keeps changing. It would make uh, uh, Susan's head spin, you know, Susan, um, classification guru. It would, it would make a head spin, you know. I mean, this this stuff is, you know, it's like uh, if you gave her it to clean it and it was pick and span, and then they picked it up and threw it out in a dirty puddle again the next day. It's kind of that kind of churn, the, the, the maturity or the data um, maturity of the people you uh, using or um, controlling the data, contributing to the data is, is not great, and it's just going up and down and all over the place. So there's a lot of um, retrospective cleanup and adjustment having to be done to the actual source data before it even comes in to the model, uh, and that's been taking up a lot of time this week, and that's a big frustration. It, it reminds me of the frustration I feel after I give my son a bath and three minutes later, before you can fully dress him, he takes a dump. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's the yeah. same struggle. Uh, Ashen and, and Al, if you want to jump in after Ashen, that'd be great. By the way, we're taking all of your questions. So if you're on LinkedIn, if you're on Twitch, if you're on YouTube, um, let me know. I want to I want to hear from you guys. By the way, I'm going to be really up in my Twitch presence. I think Twitch is uh, going to be the next move for me. I can't go on YouTube and compete with freaking Kenji. Like, 
he's 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 cannibalized all my audience kenji love you though if you're if you're watching would love to have you in the uh in in the chat um ashton go for it yeah nice man uh well i think the twitch move is a solid i just started using twitch myself and still figuring it out so well um i'll be keeping an eye for that keeping an eye out for that uh the view is actually from uh baltimore in a harbor uh i love that yeah, area, all man. The buildings. yeah baltimore's yeah, cool harbor, man yeah. Yeah, it's like cool. Baltimore. I was just walking around for like two, three hours. We had a day off for mental health awareness. Um, so I took advantage of that and just <laughs> treated myself to a walk around the city. Um, but the biggest, uh, what was the question again? I'm sorry, the wording. Biggest uh, what was the hard, hardest part about data science thing or being a data scientist or just the yeah. hardest part of your week? Work yeah, yeah. Whatever. So my previous role was a more technical role as a junior data developer. Uh, being a data analyst right now, Right. So far, the hardest part has been definitely uh, aligning uh, with the clients. And uh, I, I just cannot believe how much time is uh, spent on just getting everyone on the same track. It, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole thing, the whole uh, planning situation. But yeah, it's, that to me is just mind-blowing right now. I, I don't know if it's normal. Probably is. But uh, Seeing how many hours are spent on how many hours are spent on just planning is is, is mind boggling. I mean, my preference would have been just like get a uh, rough draft working and you know send it out as quickly as possible and then get the feedback and keep it going. But uh, yeah, the planning part. Yeah, I mean it's it's the most important part for sure, right? Like like analysis plans or the actual analytical work project plan all over how this is going to fit. Like if you don't have that in place, it's going to be uh, extremely difficult for you to um, know what to do when you are lost. Right. I mean, yeah, make a plan, but you should also plan that that plan is going to um, not be effective uh, and, and plan for those changes. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. One of the biggest things about planning, I think it's just like, to foresee potential things that might occur and you know kind of plan for those accordingly i feel like i'm saying like inception plan within a plan within a plan uh al bellamy let's go to you and then we got questions coming in from linkedin we got a question from from uh ken and then i'm scanning the chat for uh for questions as well shout out to to wego as well joe reese is in the building uh and if uh linda no or l ann uh, or Wika want to um, chime in here? I'm definitely happy to hear you guys' uh, thoughts. What was the hardest part about being a data scientist this week? What was the hardest part about data sciencing? Uh, definitely feel free to uh, to to jump in and uh, go right after Albert. Yeah, so I don't know if it was the hardest part of uh, data analytics thing this week, but. Um... Yeah, I just had a situation last night where I had put together, I was working in Alteryx, and I, I had put together what seemed like a very simple uh, operation with a couple of joins and nothing that would, would kind of blow anybody's doors off and nothing that I anticipated having any issues with. Um, and I started getting a little bit cute with it um, and, and put in a couple of bells and whistles I thought would would smooth out the process a little bit. and everything very simple, everything that I thought I knew, and it just didn't work. And so I had to, I got frustrated enough and it got late enough. I had to step away multiple times, go hang out with the wife, watch some Real Housewives. Um, and I came back and I got frustrated to the point where I had to start pulling things out. Like you ever get to that point where you just, everything should work. It just doesn't. So you start deconstructing it. And when I pulled a handful of things out, it just worked all of a sudden. And so now I have the, I think it's a Pyrrhic victory. I think we can call it that, that, okay, I got it to work and it wound up the way it should. And so I got to the right answer. So my boss is happy, but I have the deep frustration of not knowing why it worked. And the, the elegant solution that I had worked out did not work. So yeah, that's that was my frustration this week, and so I think uh, yeah, I think the people here can, have probably been through that many more times than I have. But 
yeah, it's, it's eating at me. I got to go figure out why. Why didn't it work? Yes, less less is more. It, it sounds like that that might be. Uh, yeah. I think it's. Uh, he said it was elegant, but was it elegant and complicated? Right. So was it elegant at this at the uh, at the cost of simplicity? Or does it, I don't be. know. Does that go half in, hand in hand? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I just I feel like I want to go piece by piece, like put one thing back in. Okay, that yeah. screwed it up. That's that's the problem. So didn't have time yesterday or today, but we'll get there. If uh, if anybody else, uh, we go Matt, Joe, want to chime in on this question? Let me know. I'm still waiting for questions to come through on uh, uh, LinkedIn. I was yeah. Yeah, yeah. The question is, uh, what, what was the the hardest part about data sciencing or being a data scientist this week? Um, so, also, just shout out. We got Ken's question in the queue. Comes from LinkedIn. We'll get Ken's question. Joe, while you uh, while you think of an answer, or while Matt, we go, or Linda, or LN decide if they want to chime in. I'll tell you what the hardest part about my week was. So, I'm doing this thing uh, at Comet. So, a lot of a lot of what I do at Comet, I just build product projects and I write about them. So, I get to just create content for a living, which is cool. So I'm building out a data science project. And um, specifically, we had, a, we had some, some uh, people ask for fraud detection use cases, right? So I mean, obviously I've done bin- binary classification, you know, a lot, but I've never done fraud detection. Um, so I spent, uh, I spent a, quite a bit of time just listening to a bunch of podcasts where data scientists were talking about their fraud detection methodologies and what they're doing for fraud detection and the motivation behind it. And uh, taking like that external wisdom and trying to make my own experience by like, you know, just pretending that I'm a data scientist working on a fraud detection pro- uh, project and uh, just create this crazy blog post and, and write up. Um, so that was the hardest part was just writing. I, I spent a lot of time writing, um, but I think it's going to be good. And so next week, I hope I can start coding all, all of next week. Um, but yeah, a lot of putting myself inside the head of a data scientist, inside like the mind of a data scientist who's working at a mobile payment company trying to fight fraud uh, and thinking about the challenges they would face, thinking about how they would engineer features, uh, all that stuff. Uh, I'm excited to release that blog post when it's out. I will let all of you know. Joe, what was the, the hardest part about a uh, data science thing for you this week besides coming out to my podcast? <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Um, hardest part, uh, I didn't really do any data science this week. Uh, it's the joy of running a company. You get to do everything except the fun parts. Um, so uh, let me see. Hardest part, though, uh, hired a new person, um, got my uh, chapters of my book out, which, by the way, um, let me just post this in here is now available on early release on O'Reilly. So nice. there's that. I'm giving a shout out later. If you want to learn about data engineering, go check that out. Um, yeah, I'll post yeah, man, it's, the, it's a billion other things going on, dude. It's it's crazy. So data science um, is actually helping somebody figure out some ways to, to do a, like a churn model uh, today. So that was kind of fun, a nice break from uh, running a biz. But yeah, um, for anyone who thinks they want to go run a biz because they'll get to do more of the... Uh, uh, stuff that they uh, want to do, like data science. Um, uh, talk to me about that. What's so. that like? What's what's your kind of your, your go-to method for for like churn modeling and and things like that? Do you go with just like a random forest logistic regression, or do you go like hardcore with the with you know negative binomial and the you know gamma gamma distributions and stuff like that? Um. It, it depends. I think it, the, the real question is like what um, what data is going to be available at the time of prediction, and I think that really determines the type of model you should be doing. There's definitely if the data lends itself to classification uh, methods, then certainly go that route. If it lends itself more to a um, kind of a survival analysis uh, method, then I would say do that route. So yeah, yeah. it just depends. Thank you very much. Uh, anybody else want to go? We go or Matt? I have a follow-up question for Joe. Um, yeah. Really important for aspiring data scientists and data engineers. Do you get to choose the animal that's on the cover of your book? Uh, and sadly, no. So um, with O'Reilly, the uh, uh, baby chicken is meant for early release books, and then you do not <laughs> get to choose 
the final animal that's on your O'Reilly book, unfortunately. I think you can give a suggestion and they will probably just give you a nice um, answer that looks like a middle finger. So um, that's how that but works. If I ever write an O'Reilly book, I would want a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the cover of, of my book. Which revision comes first, though, is what yeah. Russell's asking. Um, uh, what, what do you mean by that? It was Joe about the chicken egg. Oh, yeah, right. okay, never mind. I Slow, as you can tell, it's uh, uh, Friday, and I'm at the sharpest tool in the shed right now. So Let's, uh, yeah. let's jump into the question here by uh, uh, Ken, Ken McCabe. Uh, he's asking uh, if anyone has built a data analytics or a data science system or ecosystem within their organization or department. Uh, what are the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Um, I'll, I'll go to, to Joe for this one, but I mean, I've done that a couple of times and there's many challenges. The first challenge is um, if you are a data scientist, right, and you are starting the data science kind of uh, ecosystem or organization, uh, then most of your skills are not going to be applicable because most of the time you'll be doing data management, data governance, uh, and things like that. Because without having that stuff in place, it's, it's very difficult to actually do data science. Um, so, Yeah, I, I tend yeah. to agree with that. That's, um, hey, I started a whole company around that. Uh, but no, I mean, it was just, it's insanely hard. If you're starting from scratch, I would say for data scientists, trying to build up the ecosystem and the initiatives in there. Um, some tips really is uh, don't be afraid to avoid machine learning at first. I would say like drive, diving in to machine learning without getting, like, like you say, the data in place, the governance, um, data pipeline, just getting the basic infrastructure set up. That's a recipe for failure typically, unless you have a very um, good data set out of the gate and you have a lot of systems that can lend itself well to adding value. Um, the, the thing I, I can tell you the anti-patterns of where you'll probably want to avoid. It's like jumping headfirst into machine learning, just using that as like your jumping off point um, probably won't get you very far. Um, I would say not communicating with people and stakeholders, like that's another way you could like really uh, go the, off the wrong path. Um, and uh, not understand the business use cases that you're trying to solve, right? And just like immediately jumping to doing deep learning, uh, even though you don't really know what you're trying to do with it. So say if you avoid those things then you could, you, could, you have a good chance of success. Uh, I, I think over and over, um, you know, where I've seen data scientists uh, kind of fall flat and um, kind of seek redemption is when they uh, ignored all those things. And so happens to the best of though, because you're eager to get in, do the data science stuff, right? But you got to understand there's sort of a progression to doing it. So, And uh, yeah, definitely like, yeah, there's a use case for machine learning, go for it. But I think the challenge then is okay when people talk about deployment, right? It doesn't always have to be like a, like, you know, an internet website where people come and upload stuff. Dude, if you have to, then, you know, manually crank out you know, CSVs with, with the predicted output, right? Sometimes that's good enough for your business. If you want to get a little bit more sophisticated from that, because maybe your, your IT department doesn't, for whatever reason, want you to have like a, uh, a Heroku app deployed on their internet, then maybe you can create like a EXE file. And the exe file accepts as the input, whatever, it's some CSV and spits out the result, right? Joe, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's really good, an excellent point. Like there's there's nothing, uh, I would say the best approaches are the low fidelity approaches first, right? And just get wins, uh, get like cheap wins too, crappy wins. Um, that's better than coming up with like a really polished product um, that may not add value. So I definitely approach it just really scrappy, but that's how I tend to be. Uh, this is just, I think, informed by, by um haven't taken maybe the opposite approach and trying to get too fancy for my own good. So, you know, people want to see results at the end of the day and you're there to provide them. Don't be afraid to look, uh, um, don't be afraid to look pretty scrappy. Excel is your friend in this case too. So. Uh, any insight here from uh, anyone else? Uh, Eric, I know you're one of the early data scientists on a, on a team, if I remember correctly, or how, are you like coming in? fully established type of team? I would say probably probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. mostly, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly focused on the analytics side rather than like the, you know, ML and all of that, which works well for, for me and for what we're working on because 
there's so much to be gained from there's just so much to be gained from analyzing the data before we start creating more you know creating more of it uh, with the ml or whatever. yeah i mean so to to give uh ken mccabe more of a i guess um an anecdote about you know what were the challenges that we face and how did i overcome them so at my previous company it, it was you know, a legacy-ish company i guess you could say it's been around for a very long time not very uh analytically savvy or tech savvy but um like i i had to create like a data roadmap right and as a data scientist somebody who was trained in statistics and machine learning and uh more of the technical aspects of stuff having to have my role pivoted to one where it's essentially a change management role and a role where i'm kind of creating a, a strategy for a giant organization with so many moving parts that doesn't want to change the way it does things like that was very very challenging just because it took me completely out of my you know skill set so so i mean I, I overcame that just by like all right fuck it let's try to learn so i educated myself <laughs> got a bunch of books listened to a bunch of podcasts and then said all right let me try to pave a way forward through this ambiguity that makes a little bit of sense um and nope and and Few months before before I left, I think we made some decent progress on that. Um, you know, the, the the data roadmap. It started with just interviewing a bunch of people, taking what we learned from those interviews, distilling it down to, you know, trying to identify which place in the organization had the greatest, um, I wouldn't say greatest need, but the greatest uh, the people who would be the uh, most evangelical of our work and the department that would have like the most financial impact. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was challenging just being a data scientist, having to do uh, all sorts of stuff that <laughs> not my, my cup of tea. Um, shout out to Greg Kokio. Greg, what's going on, man? Good to see you here. Hey, so real quick, man. Uh, oh, yes, cheers. Uh, so the question I opened with, we're still on the opening question, waiting for questions to come in from people, is uh, uh, what was the hardest part about data sciencing this week or what was this the hardest part about your week? Uh, I'd love to hear from you kind of crazy stuff going on at Amazon. Me? So what's the, what's the question again? What's the hardest part about data sciencing for you this week? Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, the, the craziest thing I've been going through lately is uh, something you guys probably have heard before. It's, it's data. Um, I can come up with the best ideas ever. And then, um, you know, I do believe before we go around technology uh, that uh, the change management, the program enablement uh, precedes that technology. So you come up with an idea, you have to really walk people through uh, how that idea would be managed, how the operations of that idea would be you know, executed, who would be responsible, having a race and all that stuff. And then you come in and say, okay, work in uh, technology, uh, intervene uh, to make that idea work uh, like magic. And then, you know, I'm at that point where I have this idea that's like all lined up. Everybody understands where everything needs to go. And then when it comes to having data to train the machine to perform its part, my goodness, I'm, uh, I'm struggling there. Uh, it's very sparse. Uh, it's distributed uh, in different channels, whether it's through emails um, or some sort of um, uh, local drive that has a couple, couple pictures. You know, it's kind of like going to the business team and say, hey, can you give me an example where uh, this instance failed versus when the instance uh, was successful? And when it was failing, what did you do? What were the steps? When it was successful, what did you do? How did you capture that, that success to proceed to the next step? and uh, the capture of that data. And most of the stuff I'm dealing with is uh, uh, images. Um, and uh, we don't have a good way, I guess, uh, that, that problem with data quality, it's, it's real. And it's something that's, uh, it's been tough for me this week. Uh, so, um, you know, when, once you figure out you don't have the right data, now you have to uh, think about, okay, um, who are the people currently going through uh, uh, this, this step right now? Uh, who are the key POCs or point of contacts we can get uh, to to form a, a team to go after that data and build it? 
for the data science team because that data now is going to be uh, key for them to train and, and deploy uh, the, the, the machine learning, right? And then the next thing to that is this data is not static. It will change over time uh, because of the business, uh, I guess, uh, characteristics that are happening, external forces that we may not control, which means we need to have a mechanism to tell the data science team that this data will change and we need to have a trigger for updating that data so they can continuously train uh, that model to stay up to date. So um, it's been a journey for me. So this week has been quite um, challenging. So thanks for asking. So, uh, so Russell had sent this message a few minutes before you actually arrived uh, because you know we opened up this question and he said, summarizing what most people have said so far, data literacy and data governance will nearly always be uh, any data scientist challenge on the uh, on any given day. So it sounds like that also applies here as well. Um, so shout out to all the data management, data governance people out there. Uh, really appreciate all the work you do. If it was not for you professionals out there, we wouldn't be able to do shit. Uh, so let's go to uh, Eric Sims for Eric's question. Then after Eric, we're going to go to Ash. And by the way, if uh, after Eric, Eric will be Ash and then Greg. And by the way, if you're tuning on LinkedIn, do me a favor, man. Smash that reaction. I see, I see there's a lot of you, but I don't see uh, any reactions. Go ahead, share this with your network. And also let me know if you have any questions. Um, Eric, go for it. All right. So I have been thinking about side projects and stuff, right? And thinking what would be something fun uh, to work on that'd be challenging, maybe something that I you know, want to learn, but not necessarily like some huge old undertaking, right? And uh, that's like a really broad and open-ended question. So I want to narrow it down just a little bit and then ask anybody here for ideas. What little, little or big uh, projects would you do related to either Halloween, Thanksgiving, or Christmas, or any other major or not so major holiday that may be occurring in the next quarter. I can tell one idea why you're thinking. So I just go to Kaggle and I search Halloween or pumpkins or something like that. And somebody had a, somebody pointed out that it's like the, uh, crap, I got it pulled up elsewhere, but it's like, it's a database called Fred. Uh, I can't remember. It's like some economics, some, some economics database where they track everything economics um, from like, it's like 1500 different data time, time series data sources or whatever. And uh, I'm not very good at time series. So um, somebody posted that there is actually the monthly production of like candy in the United States. Uh, and so, and you can totally see the seasonality of it over the years and how uh, basically in October, everything spikes and just because we all are candy comatose by the end of the year. So I want to look at that. That's, I think that's the next thing I want to try and do for candy, candy related something. Um, but I'm curious if anybody has any other fun ideas, whether you know the data exists or not. So the uh, question is a lot of holidays coming up. You know, we're coming into last quarter of the year. What data question or data science, data analytics, whatever question would you want to answer? Um, and build a project around that, right? So, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good one, man. Let's hear from, uh, anybody got any ideas? Like whoever wants to. Yeah, so so I, I wonder if, uh, are, are you into like uh, hardware as well? It could be cool to to create some sort of uh, um, computer vision that, that automates, you know, your delivery of candies to kids coming, knocking on your door or, uh, <laughs> Or, or 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 computer vision that kind of like uh, estimates how much candy you have to deliver based on the amount of people traffic you have in front of your door or something like that. Uh, that that could be cool. But it's it's if you're into you know uh, also plugging in you know uh, uh, hardware to it to uh, give it a little spin. I don't know. Just freestyling right now. Yeah, I dig no, it. I like yeah. a little like. Detects detects movement of trick or treaters or something like like launch candy at them or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just just riffing off the top of my head, like I, I would I would look at the most popular toys like across all genres, 
that um that have been you know created and whatever in the past however many years and maybe i try to just predict what's going to be like this year's like christmas present that's going to cause everyone to just beat each other up at black friday i don't know something like that i think that'd be that'd be interesting yeah found a, uh, i found a data set of um uh halloween costume reviews like just like uh and their ratings as well so one thing if i was maybe a little bit more ambitious i was trying to think if you could if you could either tell them a star rating and then create like a it would be a terrible text generator but it could try and write a crappy review for you or write your review and then it could tell you how many stars you think it should should give you or something like that <clears throat> if you want something texty or if you want if you want like a, a manufacturing too it's like I don't know actually what kind of materials go into like most costumes, like, or what kind of, like, what is the most material used? Like when, when manufacturers start doing costumes, so you can kind of like see as a time series, when manufacturers kind of crank it up to make it ready, get it ready for the stores for people to actually get access to costumes. Because I think not only, you know, candies or, you know, production of candies are not the only thing affected by, you know, Halloween season. I think, the costume manufacturers also uh there must be some sort of trigger or some spike that happens inside of the year that kind of where you can see uh when they start manufacturing and then delivering them and getting them ready just like the candy that could be cool cool to watch heat map of the consumption of pumpkins across north america is the east, i love is, carbon pumpkins is the east coast more pumpkin like there's more pumpkin consumption on the east coast versus the west coast i don't know that 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 comes to mind um anybody else man al what would you do what would you do for a project or or wiko or russell gaia ashen what would you guys do what what interesting question would you try to solve with data if if getting the data or anything wasn't really an issue kind of throw practicality out of the window just out of pure curiosity what would you so i have an idea in this area um let's go for it and i know there's a fairly good data set as well if someone wants to dig into it um i don't have the bandwidth right now but um the world record for the largest giant pumpkin ever grown was just broken a few weeks ago it is uh 2700 pounds it was grown by somebody in italy um and they, the pumpkin growers in the world, um, they have done, so I don't know who does it, but somebody in the world does statistical analysis to line up basically three circumferences of a pumpkin, um, where they'll take the circumference that's parallel to the ground at the widest point. Um, and then they'll take basically from where the stem is from the ground over the top to the other ground at the blossom end. And then the same measurement perpendicular ground to ground uh, from there. And the sum of those three numbers, uh, they have correlated to the final weight of the pumpkin. And so the sum of those three numbers is called the over-the-top measurement, the OTT. And, uh, and so as someone that grows giant pumpkins, you can predict the weight of your pumpkin throughout the season without being able to pick it up by measuring it and statistically seeing what the weight of this pumpkin would likely be. And the goal of every grower is to have a pumpkin that weighs a lot, uh, but also weighs heavy. And weighing heavy is defined by being over the number that is in the OTT chart. So if the statistics say your pumpkin should have weighed 1,000 pounds and actually weighs 1,100 pounds, then you're 10% heavy, and that's a fantastic thing. And growers are constantly selecting the next pumpkin that will, they'll choose seeds from the previous year that um, are heavy because they want to grow a pumpkin that's heavy. And so the pool of giant pumpkins, uh, the chart has to change every year because every year growers are choosing the pumpkins that weighed heavy, which means that the statistics change. Um, and so it's a constantly moving target. Uh, and there's a website, I think, I think it's called bigpumpkins.com maybe, um, that publishes all of the growers' results around the world um, every year. Uh, and have all of these things in there. And I think it would be fun to kind of predict, like look at how the 
most giant pumpkin has changed over time, how the average has changed, like where do we think we're going to be in 2030 uh, in terms of this remarkable feat of growing giant pumpkins. <laughs> I like that. That's actually really, really, that's a good idea. So cool. Yeah, I like that. If you, uh, if I mean, if you got a link to that, that data source, that'd be very, very helpful. I dropped that in the chat here. And it's funny, um, uh, Rodney Beard said, build a classifier to distinguish between pumpkins and basketballs just for fun. I think that'd be actually pretty, pretty interesting as well. Uh, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we'll go to Wico, but after we go, but, but let me first read Rodney's comment here. He said, comes from economics, compute the dead weight loss of each holiday and rank the holiday according to this and build an app to visualize this. Um, don't know what you mean by dead weight loss, but interesting. We go, let's, let's go to you. Yeah, I didn't have much of a question or anything, but I was still more along the lines of like over holiday-ish and questions, right? Like different questions, all different questions. Yeah. And uh, my thought process was thinking like October, Halloween, scary movies, right? So maybe I was thinking kind of, I guess on the analytics side, maybe you could uh, go in to find out scary movies make that release versus the other month throughout the year. Well, I don't know, but I would imagine scary movies make more money releasing. I don't know, just throwing stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole point, man. I like that. Um, Al or any or or Ashen or anyone or you know what the Steve Monica wants to uh, go right into the fire. The question is: It's holiday season. Holiday season's coming up. We got you know Halloween and Thanksgiving and and all that stuff. Christmas and all that stuff happening. Uh, if you could do like a data science project uh, that kind of relates to the holiday season, what would you be interested in in doing as a project? Um, the, the gist of the question let's go to uh to ashen uh yeah i don't know if there's a <laughs> any data sets for this but um with the uh recent you know uh covid pandemic going on uh and the lack of resources everywhere i think it'd be interesting to see uh the change in prices for all like different popular items that are, like holiday popular items over the, the last few years and then also this year um yeah i don't know uh, but uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind, really. Hey, go for it. For me, I, I don't know if this is part of holiday, maybe like vacation, I guess, because the weather's changing, right? It's getting cold. So I'd probably do something like snowboarding, snowboards, you know, how much snowboard people sell and, you know, what kind of clothing people wear, that kind of wintry stuff, basically surrounding the snowboarding stuff. So I'd be curious to know, uh, you know, perhaps it's like the only time the season where people actually go out and snowboard, not in spring or summer. So kind of, yeah, something related to snowboards, snowboard cameras, things like that. Yeah. How about this? How about trying to find the optimal time, the optimal day of the year to go and buy Christmas gifts where you know that like the thing that you're looking for is going to be at its cheapest. That'd be an interesting one. When is the optimal yeah, time sure. to buy Christmas gift uh starting now <laughs> yeah starting now. uh uh monica do you got do you any ideas uh yeah i'm trying to think um i don't know those all sound like really good options do people return things anymore i wonder like how many people return presents anymore and how how often that happens how much that happens the reduction in reduction in GDP for a year based on the holidays. Uh, so, Eric, hopefully that gives you some uh, some good ideas. Let's uh, go to Ashen's question. Then after Ashen's question, we got Greg's question. And then, by the way, if you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching anywhere, uh, Twitch or YouTube, let me know if you got a question. And if you're in the chat, let me know if you got a question. By the way, uh, you know, if, if Linda or Matt wants to uh, jump in at any point, just uh, let me know, man. Just raise, raise your hand. I can't... Uh, can't see what you guys are doing because I can't see you. But I asked you to go for your question. Yeah. Uh, so my question was uh, to all the uh, data veterans out there, how many, uh, where's the question? Uh, 
how many years, like approximately how many years did it take you to work in your field before you developed that gut feeling uh, when it comes to making decisions? Because uh, currently when I work with my mentor right now, a lot of decisions that he makes are driven by his gut feeling from years of experience working in the field. Uh, so yeah, for, just wanted to get a gauge out there what it's like for other people. That decision around anything in particular or, or can you No, just... nothing in particular, just whatever your field is and uh, like how, how often do you rely on your gut feeling, whatever field you're working in? I mean, I wouldn't even say it amounts to the number of years. I think it would just amount to the number of decisions. So you can go a year and make not that many impactful decisions or you can go a year and just make a lot of decisions that, you know, you really you think about and then... And, and, execute and you see the good results of those decisions uh, that's a good question um yeah and that. i think that ties that ties yeah. to uh joe reese uh his his answer before he left was uh he said probably four years because he was thrown into decision making directly from day one um so he didn't have a choice um but yeah so four years for someone who was thrown into it right away versus like someone who's not making those active decisions actively uh like what's the difference like yeah, let's go to uh, Matt. Then after Matt, we can go to Russell. I see Russell has a great comment around that question here as well. Yeah, Matt, so Russell. I mean, yeah, so I mean, for like going by gut feeling, I'm pretty careful about that too. Um, to develop gut feeling, at least I, I work with a lot of marketing, e-commerce, retail data. So I mean, developing that gut feeling took me about, let's say, two, about two years to get that actually to be able to say, hey, there's something wrong with this data set. Hey, you know, the features need to be changed a bit hey, you know, I don't think the data quality is right. So, I mean, it's just constant exposure. But one thing I've always put into whatever I do is to make sure that, okay, yeah, you have a gut feeling, but always double check to make sure that's just not you going off your emotion. So I usually go in there with a gut feeling, but then I try to understand like what that's, what it's trying to tell me. Is it just me just telling it because I got a closer deadline or is it just like actually there's something off with the data? So, I mean, I, I, it does take some time to develop the gut feeling, but at the same time, you should always be looking back and forth to check to see if that's a legitimate feeling. Thank you, Matt. Let's go to uh, Russell. Uh, Russell had a good response. And then after Russell, I think, uh, Eric, I saw your hand up briefly. So if you want to chime in, I'll go right after Russell. Uh, if anybody else wants to jump in, Monica, Jaya, Linda, uh, Anne, or anyone, or Wiko, anyone, just uh, let me know. Yeah, thanks, Aubrey. Um, so I said, gut, gut feeling. I think it's a, it's like a curve that's always growing. It's always getting better with experience, with decisions, with time. Anything that you do that you get a, a response from can help um, improve your gut feel. Uh, although to, to try and tie it down to some kind of time frame, I, I approximated somewhere between three and five years to have some confidence in your gut feel. However, I then went on to qualify that, saying that uh, most data scientists would would never take their their gut feel as uh, as an as an end point. You always want to validate your gut feel. So if you have a gut feel on something, you then go down that that rabbit hole, try and validate whatever it is, and you either prove or disprove it. Uh, and the act of doing that will help refine your process of having a gut feel, but it will also ensure that you don't align yourself with any one um, biased decision that you didn't realize that you had at the time. Uh, uh, and uh, in a secondary comment, uh, for that validation, um, I also said I always try to validate myself every decision I make by making sure that I've looked at all of the data and that I can prove something from the data and not just from opinion. And after that point, I will also look to get some external validation also. So either from um, uh, peers or, or other organizations to make sure that, that what we call our gut feel, our opinions, is not, um, as we say, biased, you know? Thank you, Russell. Uh, Eric, let's go to you. And then if uh, Monica, Wiko, Greg, Jaya, if you guys want to... Uh, to uh, chime in here let me know if not then after uh, eric we can go to greg's question yeah so i definitely do not have a developed gut feeling um, i make silly mistakes or uh you know numbers that are off by an order of magnitude it happens um but 
I can say that in the little over four months that I've been in my current role, I have never had either my any any of the people above me or lateral to me um, override something that I have shared uh, with data because they had a gut feeling that it was actually otherwise or anything like that. Like the data wins in the discussion. It's like not even an argument. It's just we are all agreed that this is the source of truth. And if we don't agree with the source of truth, then we need to figure out why we don't agree with the source of truth, um, not figure out why the source of truth doesn't agree with what we think it, you know, the source of truth should be saying. And so I think that just cultivating that kind of a culture, like that's the person I want to be and those are the people I want to work with. Um, and so cultivating that kind of culture, then I don't have to worry like if I have necessarily developed it. I do want to have a frame of reference, you know, so we can say like, this average cost that I'm pulling looks like this. Does that pass the sniff test of what we think average cost actually is? You know, but it's not like, like I said, it's just not like something that we're we're debating. It's we follow the data. So it's really helpful. Takes off that pressure. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely love that. Love that. Excellent, excellent uh, uh, response there. Let's go to Monica. Then after Monica, we'll go to Greg. Yeah. So. Um totally back up Eric's points. You should have data to back up any, you know, uh, thoughts that you have, um, to, to back that up. Uh, but I, I kind of see it as like a normal distribution. So if you're working, not like, you know, length of time that you have experience, but if you're working on a particular project, you come in, you have no, you know, you know, have no feeling whatsoever until you start looking into it. And then you have this gut feeling and you're like, yeah, I understand it. But then you start second guessing yourself and, you know, doing more and more detailed research. And then you kind of like go back down and start all over again. So I don't know. Gut feelings are really, it can be really tricky. So the detail, you need to have that data to back up what you're feeling. Monica, after Monica, actually, let's do this. Let's go to, let's go to uh, Jaya. And then after Jaya, we'll go to Greg and then jump right into Greg's question after that. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to lead a nonprofit organization many years ago, and I know I used to work for it for them for about five years. You know, get a feel for the organization and stuff like that. And eventually, when I was when I had an opportunity to lead the organization, um, you know, it it was sinking uh, in terms of funds and so forth. So, but you know, having having worked there for four to five years, you you know you somehow get a feel for how, how they operate and stuff like that. And of course, uh, data is very powerful. And using the data, you can identify certain, you know, certain good points and bad points about what's happening, why it's thinking and so forth. And uh, uh, I, I think data is powerful and it'll make, it helped it help me in, in strategizing certain things in the organization and having it come out of the thinking situation. So yeah, I think, Having four to five years of some kind of a feel for the organization you've worked and all that stuff helps, as well as the data that you have on the site also also helps you kind of strategize operations and stuff like that. And the last thing is, I would say, uh, share it with the team uh, and 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 you know let them see what you've come up with the data and stuff like that, and and have a a, a good uh, team effort. So that they can back you up, even if you fail, you know. So, um, so you need those those uh, people behind your back who can support you, even if you fail. But you tried, so yeah. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Greg, and uh, then Greg, you also have a question, so we'll take that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, answers were awesome. Uh, fully agree. So, for example, for me, it's always been uh, the more I focus on the the process that I'm uh, interested in or responsible for, uh, staying close to that process because, or, or uh, in other words, where the the data is uh, create being created or originated. So, I can take an example when I was a product manager and I was uh, running pricing uh, data. Um, it was key to understand the processes that sales team were uh, using. 
So the data would be originating, uh, would be originated in, in Salesforce. Um, and then, you know, they would, they would put some contracts in uh, with these, with these customers and, and the prices would dictate, you know, um, uh, how much profit we can expect based on the volume that customers would purchase uh, in certain frequencies and et cetera. So uh, knowing that process and talking to, to uh, my customers, and I was dealing mostly with, um, uh, uh, with, the, with the internal sales team. And so I kind of knew uh, over time what kind of prices or price range certain customers would fall under. So uh, when I was building in the background, you know, building some data pipelines and then uh, tools that would kind of predict where the prices should be based on certain volumes or when somebody wants to, to purchase, you know, when those predictions were out of range, my gut feeling would kick in and say, no, that doesn't sound right. I need to do something with my math um, in, in, the, in the back end. So uh, having some sort of, you know, understanding of the process at the front end uh, gives you that gut feeling to go in the background and validate that with data, as Monica was saying, and, and, and Eric, uh, to make sure that um, it makes sense. So you shouldn't go only by gut feeling, but that gut feeling should be a trigger for you to question it more so you can confirm whether that gut feeling was right or wrong. But at least it gives you a sense of uh, orientation in terms of where you want to go and it helps you bring that critical uh, mindset. But it takes time. So for me, uh, about two years into a position, I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, that doesn't look right, but I'm not going to go with a decision now until I validate that gut feeling with data. I like that. Greg, thanks so much. Ashton, hopefully that answered your question. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think I personally, I don't know if I got like a gut feeling, I guess. Uh, I'm just careful with the decision-making process. Like if I have a big decision to make, I make sure I just don't go off my first initial reaction. Like whatever my initial perception is, I will usually pause and question it and wonder why it is I'm having that as an initial reaction. And if my, my explanation to myself for why I'm having that reaction is not a good one, then I'm not going to act. Um, that makes sense. And you'll find yourself to like changing your mind too, right? Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. the gut feeling was the wrong one, right? So that gut feeling should be exactly that, Ash and you. So to trigger, to ask more questions. And then you have to be open to when you find these answers to be open to change that too, right? Change your, uh, um, you know, your, your past assumptions so you can develop new gut feelings, right? So it's not something you do consciously, right? You, you gut feelings, you build them uh, subconsciously. So you have, to, you have to watch out. You can't just trust them blindly like this, right? So uh, the truth lies in the data. So yeah, you get, get careful because you know you get too many gut feelings. You might need to start taking some, uh, uh, some, some medication for indigestion. Uh, Greg, go for it. <laughs> hey, um, I, I, I'm, I'm turning it a little bit uh, in another subject, right? So this is, I was reading about uh, compilers uh, the other day. Uh, can somebody explain it to me, right? What compilers are? I'm assuming that ML engineers typically are the ones uh, who should know about those uh, because, you know, it, it really speaks to how computation will happen, how that data can be distributed um, across, you know, multiple processors uh, to, to uh, you know, how much, can someone explain to me what compilers are and how to leverage how much a data scientist or ML, ML engineer should know about compilers and what are the best practices to uh, make sure the ML pipelines are built efficiently from a from a you know processing perspective, cost perspective, uh, you know uh, lead uh, SLA perspective, you know um, and rea reliability, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just reading out the definition strictly from Wikipedia here, uh, and then if anybody has insights, let me know. I'm just reading the definition because uh, be clear. So in computing, a compiler is a computer program that translates computer code written in one programming language into another language. The name compiler is primarily used for programs that translate source code from a high-level programming language to a lower-level language to create an executable program. 
Yeah, so in other words, it's kind of like when you think about compilers for ML, kind of like the intermediate between taking that ML code, compressing it, and, and serving it to the CPU, for example. So it's what's in between the ML code in the CPU or GPU or whatever uh, hardware that will take that you know, uh, compiling note or instructions and perform the processing of it. So when it comes for training or um, live inferences, so you may need uh, a more robust, uh, you know, so you can determine, you know, how to best uh, stage your uh, computing needs for the necessary hardware, whether CPU, GPU, I don't know. So I just need somebody to help me understand it. And, um, you know, I know Chip Huyen has a great article on that one, um, but I'm open to kind of like a layman term explanation about that. Um, when, and if we can answer here, yeah. So when you're talking about compilers, are you talking about like from a low level language to like the uh, like assembly language in, on that level, like the hardware side, or are you talking more of like the uh, transformers like for, um, a neural network or something like that. So I'm thinking about any any ML model uh, that needs to uh, distribute its data to the necessary hardware that will perform the processing. So if you think about uh, the training process of an ML model, um, you have a huge amount of data that that ML model needs to go through which means you have to understand what kind of uh, processor you need to uh, invoke for it, right? So it could be a GPU instance or a CPU instance. So uh, a compiler will help you uh, redistribute that data uh, evenly or tell you, you know, how to effectively uh, build uh, that, that, that code for that ML to kind of uh, take that, that data and go through it uh, in the right instance, in the right GPU or in the right uh, uh, CPU. So if you think about how uh, somebody builds an ML um, uh, code, it's kind of like high level and then the compiler takes it down to the lower level, which is here's that code, here's what you need to do with that data, with that code, uh, and gives that instruction to a CPU uh, to, to perform it. So, um, and, and it seems like there are some things that you need to do to understand how to, um, and there are different compiler tools too that you can use uh, to make, you know, your code run smoothly to ensure reliability, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, say, for example, when you launch into production, uh, there are compilers that that uh, serve different purposes. Uh, whether you want low latency uh, runs uh, of data, running your process, uh, running your data. Um, or, or whatever use cases, um, that's, that's, that's what a compiler does based on my understanding. But it's kind of like, I want to have a better confidence on how I understand it. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, damn, dude, I got no clue. Uh, but I know what I got to research now just to, just to satisfy that curiosity because I pulled up a bunch of... Yeah, and, and I can share. Um, let, me, let me check real quick because Chip Huyen has a cool um, article on compilers too. Now, and I was curious about you know what what kind of stuff does an ML engineer need to know uh, needs to know uh, about compilers. So I'll I'll check that here. Um, once I find the article, I'll I'll put it in the in the chat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Great question, man. I wish, wish I had an answer. I think, uh, you know, next week when we got more ML engineers in the building, that might be a good uh, question to ask. Um, I don't see any other questions coming in through the chat or through LinkedIn. Um, I just saw somebody join in. So uh, if if this person, uh, Habibi, has a uh, question, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to start to wrap things up here, my friends. Um, Actually, I have a question about, so actually I posted on LinkedIn also, kind of like you guys were talking about like a pumpkin size. So I was kind of like wondering like how they grow it. 
it's kind of like did they use any chemical or just kind of like it was a regular process because there is no way to make it. So when they are kind of like a evaluating results, are they looking the how much chemical they use it? So is there any? Oh, as like a, as like a, uh, like a project idea. There's a link right here that Eric sent. Uh, Big pumpkins, uh, how to. I post the link on LinkedIn as well. Um, so yeah, that <laughs> if you're gonna grow uh, one ton pumpkins, like definitely uh, take a picture and send them to us. Uh, yeah. So I know people that have grown them up to two thousand pounds, all organic. Wow. Um, so it is possible without. I mean, there are fertilizers and there are organic fertilizers, but uh, there's a lot of people that do use chemicals too. So um, in the community I grow in, it's a probably about 30% of people grow organic and the other 60% don't. So maybe hopefully that uh, answers the question. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Right on. Hey, well, if you learn any more about giant pumpkins, uh, let us know. I think that's a great project idea. Um, thank you very much for, for putting that into the uh, ether there. And guys, looks like there are no other questions. I will be here next hey, week. I hope you are hey, too. Hey, yes, Harper. Yes. So it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I can ask the question also next next week, but um, Monica and I, we found the article and it's in the, in the chat if you want to give oh. it a look and oh, maybe and next week we can discuss it. Introduction to machine learning compilers and optimizers. Uh, I'll put put that right there in the LinkedIn chat as well. Um, yeah, definitely something to, to research. That'll be interesting. Um, awesome. Thank you, Greg. Uh, all right, guys. Well, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, uh, got a bunch of stuff happening tomorrow. Actually, eleven a.m. Central Standard Time. I'll be live on LinkedIn talking to Brittany Doe. We will be talking about a book next week. I got a few live sessions. Um, got Andrew Jones and then the data professor himself, uh, Channon, will be on the show. Then I'll be on another podcast, Data In and Impact Podcast, hosted by Christian Steinert. Uh, then the rest of the month, we've got uh, Natalie Nixon that will be live stream. I'm talking to uh, Christina Stathopoulos, um, though I don't think I'll be live streaming that one. Uh, she'll be on the podcast. Also going to be talking to Marcus Dusatois. Marcos Duswata is the author of The Creativity Code. He's also um, written a number of other books. He's a professor at Oxford. He's the mathematician that is in charge for uh, educating the public on mathematics. We'll be talking about his fascination with prime numbers as well. I think that's going to be awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to, to speak with him because that, that book was amazing. Um, opened by it that that was a book that really got me into deep learning otherwise i would have just stayed a statistician um also going to be speaking to daliana lu um the same day as i'm speaking to marcus so i probably will not go live with daliana uh, and then also danny ma Dan, i'll be talking to danny ma i've actually never spoken to danny ma one-on-one ever we're actually spoken to him so that'll be uh, interesting to uh, chat with him maybe he'll just speak in memes i do not know um my friends, thank you so much for coming and hanging out. Really appreciate you guys being here and spending time with me this afternoon slash evening. And remember, you've got one life on this planet, my friends. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Bye.